This is my first piece of advice tonight in dating. Don't ever use the word hangout unless you just want to be in the friend zone forever. And, uh, but ladies, is that, can I get an amen? You don't like the word hangout? I learned that later. And so I, I said this, this kind of vague, you know, just let me know if you're ever around, even though I was, I, I, I was interested. It was twisted, but anyways. And so as you might think, she was confused. We hit it off, sparks flew, as Taylor Swift would say. Um, but the texts and the communication and the radio silence, I was busy. Let me just justify, y'all, so y'all don't hate me. It's a very busy season of my life, okay? And uh, what ends up happening is she calls together the high council. And the high council is like a group of girls that she's friends with. And she pulls out her phone and she's like, all right. You know, this includes her sister, her roommates, different friends, like, you know, all these sorts of people. And so they pull out the phone and they're like, let's read through the text messages. This is what, this is what he said. And he used two dots. I used two dots in my text messages. She's like, don't worry about the two dots. He's weird. And she's explaining to them. She's giving them the picture. She's painting the full picture for them. And she's like, but, I mean, we hit it off, but like the text is kind of weird. He's like being vague and, you know, I don't, you know, I want a man that's confident, you know, they're trying to discuss, you know, what I'm really like while I'm not there. This is all, this is all what I've heard secondhand, just so you know, this is, this is a true story and you're going to need to know that. Here's the deal. Finally, her sister just looks her dead in the eyes. She goes, do you wish he had just called you and asked you on a date? And she said, well, I didn't I wouldn't have expected him to just, you know, call the next day, 24 hours later, and say, come to Dallas and go on a date with me. She puts the phone down. And she hears this noise. (laughs) About this time in history, Apple introduced a new technology called voice memos. (laughs) They hadn't worked out the kinks yet. If you put your phone next to your face and you dropped it, at this point, there was a kink in the system. It would just shoot it out before you had any say of whether or not it should go. They've since updated it. You're welcome. So this is the voice memo that I received. You come to Dallas and go on a date with me. That's every one of your worst nightmares. Both to send and receive. Did you hear this? Listen closely. You come to Dallas and go on a date with me. She didn't live in Dallas. She was talking as if she was me. She was talking about me. (laughs) You laugh now. You know what was going on in the room? People are falling over. She fell over, presumably dead from everyone's worst nightmare. The high council is crying. It's no longer fun. It's no longer the, uh, you know, it's no longer the board meeting. It's now just crying and laughter and rolling around. And I'm sitting in class and I'm like, what is going on? Why is my, I just got this voice memo. That's weird. I put it in my pocket and the high council comes together. And you know what they do? They own it. The next series of text messages to me are her admitting the high council has met. We were talking about you. We were being honest. She said, if I'm just being honest, they asked me if 
I wish that you had asked me on a date. I said yes. I put my, you know, she explains the whole thing. She owns it. It's honest. And then she also just clarifies at the end, I'm not asking you to ask me on a date because that might be kind of weird at this point because ha- I hadn't asked her on a date at this point. So all of this is going on and they just own it. They own it. They're honest. And so tonight, as we continue talking about relationships, I'm not just going to talk about honesty within relationships, but what I'm going to ask you to do tonight is I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself tonight. And if you're honest with yourself, I believe that there can be benefits and it will be beneficial in all of your relationships, whether it be dating, whether it be friendship, whether it be roommates, whether if you're engaged, this will be helpful to you and your fiance. If you're married, this will be helpful to you and your spouse. This is for everyone, but specifically, we're going to look at what this might look like within the dating context. But again, I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself tonight as we go through God's word And we see three things that I believe can absolutely kill relationships. We're going to look at three things that can absolutely kill relationships. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5 with me. Tonight is going to land in three parts. We're going to talk about self-righteousness, anger, lust, And the solution, so I guess it's four parts, I lied. Self-righteousness, anger, lust, and the solution. That's where we're going tonight, starting in Matthew 5. What you need to know is that this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what people call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Uh, What you need to know about the book of Matthew is that it was written to the primary audience of the Jews. So it's written to the Jewish people uh, with the Jewish people in mind. And we must know that the Jewish people were looking for a specific person to save them. They were looking for a savior. And the book of Matthew is emphasizing that Jesus is that person. And so just to set the stage of where he's giving this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 1, it says this, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the primary audience of the entire book of Matthew are Jewish people. And what what Jesus is doing is he's going up the mountain, and his primary audience is also the disciples, who are also primarily Jewish. So that brings us to where we can now go into where we're going to be for the most of the night. We're going to be starting in verse 17 in Matthew 5. Let's read together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, all the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen closely. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing we're going to look at tonight, or the first question we're going to ask ourselves is this, am I self-righteous? But I'd like to define self-righteous for you straight out of Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and it is the following. 
Because of what Jesus has just said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when asking the question, am I self-righteous? I would say self-righteousness is having or characterized by, don't try to write this down. It's too long of a definition. I'm just going to save you some pen right here. Uh, having or characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one that is totally correct or morally superior. So let's just take the definition of somebody that thinks they're superior to other people. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, if you're going to try to find your life and your worth and, and your righteousness and obeying the law, then be superior to the most righteous people around us, the scribes and the Pharisees. You want to live according to the law? Be more holy than them. That in our day and age would be like uh, Jesus coming to you and saying, okay, if you want to You want to live according to the law? You want to live according to your self-righteousness, to your goodness? Be as holy as Billy Graham. Be as holy as C.S. Lewis. Be as holy as Mother Teresa. Be as holy as Tim Tebow. I don't know. Whoever he would say. It's saying your righteousness has to surpass all of those people combined, probably. If you want to live according to the law, what you have to live up to is perfection. So he's saying, good luck. But so often we we tend to find our worth, our superiority in the way we look around and just think we're better than other people. That's living according to the law. Finding our life and our self-righteousness. And let's talk about how this works within relationships. Self-righteousness within relationships, how does it kill them? Self-righteous people, we we as self-righteous people have a tendency to serve ourselves within a dating relationship, friendship, roommates, no matter what it is. Self-righteous people have a tendency to serve self. And I'm just going to put us in this category. We can be so concerned with self that we have no concern for others. Let's just think about how that might not work in a dating relationship. When we're talking with one another, it's always I, 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 or me, 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 and it's never like, how are you? You can't even get a word out with some of us, with a self-righteous person. They don't care. They're not asking you. They don't want to know. We have a tendency, self-righteous people, us, we have a tendency to think, what can I get out of this relationship? Instead of asking the question, what can I do to point the other person in this relationship to Jesus Christ? It's what can I get out of it? That's what self-righteousness does. Or it's often saying things like this, like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. That's what self-righteous people do. I know it. I can, I, this is the way we tend to live. Like, I just want to do what I want. Let me just tell you, five to ten years from now, when you're living according to the do what you want, and you have three kids, your wife is at home, homie, it's not going to be cool on Friday night to be like, honey, I'm going to go do what I want. Yeah, see how that goes over. I'm serious. We laugh, but, the, but we don't realize the consequences to the mentality of always just doing what we want. Why, why does that have to do with self-righteousness? Self-righteousness, that's self-service. What can I get out of it? Do whatever I want, whenever I want. It's the opposite of what Philippians 2, 3 says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Self-righteousness is the opposite end of the spectrum. So when, I, when it comes to asking ourselves the question, am I self-righteous? I think one of the best examples of this, um, as of recent, that's entered in my life, the most self-righteous people that have entered in my life recently are these goats that I've, I've, I've been given. They're on the screen. 
Um, this is LeBron and Big Cat. Um, they look cute. Let me just tell you, they're punks. They're self-righteous. They don't do anything but what's best for them. And it's funny to like look at and get mad at them. They only show you love and affection if you have something to give them. They're selfish. They're morally superior to every being around. If you don't have food, they don't care about you. All they do is poop, cry, and eat food, you know, and and then repeat all those things, okay? Over and over again. That's what these goats do. And I think it's so funny that these goats, uh, you know, uh, we can take those down. It's kind of distracting. LeBron and Big Cat. Um, (laughs) The reason why it's so interesting is because I think it shows us that self-righteous people only love and care for maybe those that can further their status. Only those that can, can, can love them back and give them something back. It's not unconditional. It's all conditional. It's all transactional. They only care for people that can help them or they can get something out of. In the end, we all have a tendency towards this. It's called self-righteousness. We fall short of the law. So when answering the question, am I self-righteous, the answer is yes. Let's keep reading the second thing that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 21. He says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until the day that you have paid the last penny, penny, excuse me. The second question we're going to ask ourselves tonight is, am I angry? Because what Jesus is saying is, you've heard it said, don't kill people. Don't be a murderer. And all of us are like, or majority of us are probably like, yeah, I haven't killed anyone, right? (laughs) Who knows? We laugh. We haven't killed somebody. At the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. If you've ever even been angry in your mind or in your heart, You're liable to the same judgment. He's changing and extending the law of do not murder, not just to the act itself, but also to the internal attitude behind the act itself. And so how do we know, possibly, if we're angry, as we're asking ourselves this question, am I angry? How do we know if we're angry? Let's just just think about the way anger comes about in our lives. When you see somebody in class or in passing or you run into them, does it bring up bitterness? Do you leave there and you have this kind of fake conversation in your head of like how you might defeat them in some sort of word battle later, like on down the road? Like, man, if only I could just be in conversation with them, I would throw these darts at them and I would win in all these sorts of ways and I'd prove that I'm better and they're worse. And there's bitterness there. There's tension. And you, you're like, you know, you're thinking, have I ever had these thoughts before? And the answer is possibly yes. And what is that? That's anger. It's liable to the same judgment as murder. What? What Jesus is saying is crazy. 
But that's what anger is. It's, it's not just murdering somebody. It's not just the act. It's not just getting in a fist fight. It's not just gossiping. It's the thought. It's the intention. And I'm not saying you can't get nervous around people. Let me just take a quick step back. <laughs> Sometimes we run into people and we get nervous because of some things in the past. And nerves are different than bitterness. And pray that the Lord would distinguish those two for you as you're working through whether or not you're angry with somebody. In relationships, anger uh, can manifest itself in many different ways. Uh, Our anger, uh, I would say, creates division. It keeps a record of wrong. Our anger within ourselves, it keeps records of others wrong. So if you're in a dating relationship, you start, you start kind of counting tallies of like all those times they did this or, or did that. And, and in the end, our anger impedes our ability to love. Our anger impedes our ability to love. That bitterness that's unresolved, that hasn't been reconciled, it's impeding our ability to care for one another. Which is why Jesus is saying, stop everything. If you have anger or bitterness and you're holding something against somebody, seek restoration. Seek them out. Ask for forgiveness. He's saying if, you're, if you are going to the altar and you're realizing that you have unfinished business, he's saying go take care of it immediately. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I, I don't know about you, but if you were like me, when I was in college, you probably would be like, I'm not an angry person. I've never lashed out at anyone. I've never yelled at anyone. But recently, I was in a relationship, and I started to realize, or I didn't realize, excuse me, that you know, every time she gave me Lululemon, I was like, wait a second, is she just giving me Lululemon so that I'll give her Lululemon back? And it was just kind of this like weird, savage, twisted thought that I would have every once in a while. And then she would say something of like, I'm like, man, I just don't know if she's for me. You know, she said that in front of her parents. There's another time that she did that. And it just kept piling up. And there was multiple times where I'm like, I just, at the end of the day, I don't know if she's really for me. And it, and it, finally just came head on where it's just too much and all of a sudden it started to weigh me down and then I was with her and all of a sudden I just just came crashing down. And I I was looking at that moment. I was like, wait, what was the last one I picked up? Like, what was it that caused it? It was that last thing and, and she knew that there was something wrong. We're in a car and I'm like, I literally, I don't even want to be in the car. I don't, I don't know what's wrong. I can't communicate. And she's like, well, what is it that you're angry about? And I'm like, well, it was something small and it was just this one rock, but in reality, what had been building up over time were so many other things that I didn't know how to reconcile. I didn't know how to, how to communicate. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with that stuff. And you go, okay, big deal. Big deal, yeah. You were angry, you didn't know how to communicate. Here's the reality. She ended up breaking up with me because I didn't know how to communicate. I was, I was lost. I was stuck. I needed, I needed separation to pursue healing. Here's the only problem. I had already asked her parents if I could marry her. 
swerve to those plans. So when I tell you at the beginning these three things could kill a relationship, I mean it. I mean it sincerely. So when it comes to the question, am I angry? The answer is yes. We are angry. Let's keep going. The last thing we're going to ask ourselves tonight, we're going to read from verse 27. It says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So our third question tonight is, am I lustful? Coming from this portion of scripture, we know not to have adultery or commit affairs. We know this. And Jesus rewrites it again. And he says, if you even have the thought in your mind or in your heart, he says heart, you will be liable to judgment. And so what he's saying in our context is if we've ever even had some sort of stalking on social media, if we've ever, we've ever fantasized as we pass by somebody walking to class, if we've ever done anything of those sorts, it's liable to the same judgment as adultery. So when we ask ourselves a question, am I lustful? I think he's condemning us, but I think it's helpful. Why? Because our hearts and our thoughts is where adultery starts. He's saying, don't just, it's not just about not acting on it. I think what he's saying is he's, he's protecting us. He's showing the reality that all of this starts, adultery starts in the heart. And I honestly believe along the same lines that fantasy is the greatest enemy to marriage today. It's one of the greatest enemies to marriage. The next part of the Sermon on the Mount talks about divorce, and I don't think it's just, you know, by chance. I think he's protecting us. He's giving us a new way to recognize things, a new way to view things. And in relationships, what does lust do? Within a dating relationship, what does lust do? It drives our physical intimacy too far. It's the very thing that's driving our physical intimacy. It's, it's corrupting what we're attracted to. It's corrupting our, our, the way that we, we serve. It makes it kind of like the self-righteous. It's all about self-seeking. It's corrupting all of those things. That's the consequence to allowing those things to rule our lives. Let me just tell you something briefly. I've had this thought for so long. And it's that we have a tendency to play uh, life in our heads sometimes. And I just want you to be really careful with the way that we play life in our heads sometimes and we play out all the next steps and all the next things that are going to happen because what's going to be hard is one day you're going to have to stop playing life with the people you pass by and the people you meet. Like maybe I could marry that person one day. Here's the reality. When you're married, if you haven't untrained yourself from playing life in your head, you will continue to play life with people. And it will lead to adultery. It starts in the heart and the thoughts. 
Which is why I think Jesus is saying, hey, it's not just about this. Peel it way back. It's this. And Jesus says, hey, if this is the case, do everything possible to cut it out. Take out your eyes. Cut off your hands. Do whatever it takes to be free from this. He's showing us, be serious. Be serious. Seek all avenues to heal and recover and have breakthrough. Find breakthrough in Christ alone. And here's the reality. You think, you know, this is Baylor, MCC, TSCC. This is Waco. Like, that doesn't happen. Let me just tell you a story of something that happened to a friend of mine recently. He was driving through Waco, and he just has to meet with me. And I'm like, what's up? We start talking. He's like, dude, we got a problem. I'm like, okay, let's talk through it. And he proceeds to tell me that he, about his sex addiction. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of the last person I'd expect to be telling me this. And so in, in our conversation, I asked him, like, how, how do you think you got here? If you don't mind me asking, like, it's my job to protect our people. And he's like, dude, for years, I was addicted to pornography. And I just thought I was better than everyone else because I wasn't sleeping with people. And I didn't sleep with anyone until I became a junior in college. Since then, over 40. Couldn't tell you their names. Couldn't tell you all of what has happened. But dude, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm addicted. And so we prayed. We worked through it. That stuff and the heart and the thoughts and the mind, it leads somewhere. And as I said earlier, it leads to killing relationships, destroying relationships. It leads us to brokenness. Because lust is like an appetite. I want you to think about this with me. Lust is like an appetite. Appetite is, is, is what we have, what we are attracted to. And when appetite meets opportunity... That's when you capitalize, it's called temptation, and you act on it. And have you ever had that moment where you're like, I just couldn't, I literally couldn't stop. It was just done deal. Yeah, that's because your appetite met the opportunity. There was no stopping. And so what we need to do is, is we need to, to replace this appetite for sin and flesh with with the person of Jesus. We need to abide in the spirit. Well, we talked about that first week of abiding in Jesus. Abiding is what changes our appetite. Abiding is what changes our appetite. Unhealthy tastes good sometimes. But it's gonna make you sick. And over time, your appetite can change to desiring healthy things. The same is true spiritually. If your heart and mind are set on lust, they will feed and act on lust. If your heart and mind are set on the Spirit, on the Lord, you can set your mind on things above, and it will change the things that you desire. Abiding in Jesus changes our appetite. So when asking the question, am I lustful? The answer is, I am. We are lustful. Remember at the beginning, when I asked you to be honest with yourself, and I think it will be helpful to your relationships in the future. I want you to know that thus far we've seen we are self-righteous. We are angry and we are lustful. 
And I want to tell you two things really briefly that the enemy wants you to do in this very moment. The enemy wants you to think that you're alone. The enemy wants you to think you're the only one that has any sort of these issues or internal thoughts or heart problems. He wants you to think you're the only one and you can't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about this. It's not worth it. They'll think of you weird. They'll look at you different. Don't do that. That's what the enemy is going to be telling you. The other thing the enemy is going to tell you to do is he's going to tell you to leave here and do better. And you go, what? Yeah, what he's going to have you do is he's going to have you leave here and think that discipline is what's going to fix your self-righteousness. He wants you to leave here and think that discipline is going to fix your anger or discipline is going to fix your lust and all these different problems. He wants you to try to do it on your own. And that is not what is going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. What the whole Sermon on the Mount is pointing us to, it starts with this sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus wants us to get to the place where we realize I am self-righteous, I am angry, I am lustful, and I need Jesus. We need Jesus. That's the solution to those three things. We have all sinned and fallen short, whether it be in action or thought. Which brings us to our need for a savior, the very person that didn't come to remove the law, but to fulfill it by living it on our behalf. The only thing that can humble our self-righteousness, that can bring peace to our anger, that can heal our lust, is the person of Jesus. We need the cross because we need somebody to fulfill this law that we can't live up to. This is meant to point us to the fact that we're poor in spirit. And I just want you to know, this is world-changing in the sense that no other religion is based on a weakness. There's no other religion that has salvation or excuse me, Christianity is the only religion where salvation doesn't depend on being good enough. It's the only one where somebody was good enough on our behalf. That's good news for all of us that have not lived up to the perfection of the law. And remember that context we kind of blew over earlier in the, in the night that none of you probably took note of. <laughs> I don't blame you. I wouldn't have either. The, re- the reality is that this context is Jesus is mirroring what Moses did in Exodus. I want you to write down Exodus 19 and 20. Moses is going up to the mountain and he's meeting with God. And he's receiving revelation of law and he's coming back down And he's giving it to the people. And what Jesus is doing is he's bringing his disciples up the mountain. And he's not going to give them new law. He's just going to help them realize that he has fulfilled the old. 
that he is the fulfillment, that you no longer have to go through a mediator, that he is that mediator. He's inviting us to go up that mountain and meet with God himself. And the reason why I tell you that tonight is because today what that means is that so many of us are settling for Moses when Jesus is inviting us to walk up the mountain. What I mean by that is this, that we're settling for sermons and podcasts and the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God and blogs and all these different things, maybe even vertical. You're settling for for just coming and listening to information when Jesus is saying, come up this mountain Meet with God. Know me on a personal level. Why? Because we are poor in spirit, because we're self-righteous, angry, lustful, crazy people. He's saying, come on up. And you think, no, 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 I'm too bad, I'm too bad. He invited Peter up. Peter denied him. That's one of the people sitting in front of him. It's not that you're not good enough. He is inviting all of us up to be and have a relationship with the God of the universe. That's what he's doing for us. He's coming to show I fulfilled it. And because I fulfilled it, you can come up here with me and you can know me. You can have a relationship with me. So in summary tonight, we're self-righteous. We're angry. We're lustful. And we need Jesus. And we can go up the mountain and we can have a relationship with him. We can know him. We can meet with him. We can spend time in his word. We can listen to him in that way. We can talk to him through prayer. We can belong to the local body of Christ and have God speak to us in that way. That's even a way we go up the mountain to meet with him. And because of all this, I want to challenge all of you with this. I want to challenge you in two ways. I'm going to call it the 20-day challenge. The first thing in the challenge is Bible. I want you to, part of going up the mountain is listening to what God has to say. So if you don't know where you're going to turn in the Bible tomorrow, I'd encourage you to turn these next 20 days to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It's 20 chapters, 20 days. One chapter a day. Bible is the first challenge. The second challenge is to belong. Tonight's church night. It is meant to help you belong to the local church. You have 20 days. That's three Sundays to just get connected to the local church. And for those that were um, felt alone when I talked about that lust stuff, when I talked about all that, where you're like, I can't tell anyone. You, I, I want to give you 20 days. It's probably best that I give you 24 hours to let people in. And I know at this place, it's like, no, I can't tell anyone. I can't, I can't make a decision for Jesus. Then it will be, it will be embarrassing of all that I've done. Let's just even think about salvation. Like, what if I left here and I was like, man, I've never gone up the mountain. I've never known Jesus personally. I've never known the God 
of the universe personally. I've never gone up that mountain. And now I'm starting to see that Jesus is letting me go up that mountain. And it might be weird for me to raise my hand and leave this place and be like, wow, I think God just revealed himself to me. That might sound weird because we grew up in the church or for whatever reason we're scared to to do something like that. And I'm telling you, do not listen to that stuff. The Bible has made it clear. He has lived the perfect life on our behalf, died on the cross for the sin that we should have been held accountable for. That's good news that we can go up the mountain. We can know the God that saves us. The last thing I want you to see tonight from the Sermon on the Mount is that it starts with the poor in spirit and it ends with setting your feet on the rock, which is also kind of the linear path I wanted you to see that we're self-righteous, we're angry, we're lustful, which drives us to being poor in spirit. But because we're poor in spirit, we can go up the mountain and know the God of the universe, and that allows us to set our feet on the rock, who is Jesus. And I tell you that because one of the last people to speak on the Sermon on the Mount and setting your feet on the rock was a man by the name of Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil was a friend of Vertical, and he came the first time, and he spoke, and he said, set your feet on the rock. And we're all like, okay. And then he goes on to talk about how he had been just diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. And he said, I'm going to be healed. What? I'm sitting there like, this is, this is my first year. This is, who's this crazy guy? I'm going to be healed, and if I'm not healed... And I die. I'll resurrect from the dead. What? This guy's crazy. I'm like, what? And then he says, and if I die and he doesn't resurrect me from the dead, he'll resurrect me on the day that matters. And what struck me was that I looked at him and I thought, that guy knows a God differently than I know him. He believes in him in this way that is it it rocked my world. And he went on to die. And I tell you that because we have to have hope. We have to have a rock to build our house on. A firm foundation. We have to have it when our parents are going through a divorce, when we can't make the grades that we need to make, we have an injury that just keeps nagging. When we are so lonely, we don't, we don't feel like anyone knows us or anyone loves us, all these different things. We need the rock. I got good news. We have Jesus. of us that are in Christ, if we set our feet on the rock, that's how this room is going to change the world. Let's pray.
as our heads are bowed, I'm going to ask all of us in the room are we self righteous? Are we angry? Are we lustful? If the answer is yes to any of those, I want you to just raise your hands with me. I want you to raise your hands with me. I know it sounds weird. If you are have self-righteousness in you, anger in you, lust in you, I just I'm raising both hands with you and I'm saying, Lord, we come to you and we admit that we are weak. Lord, we are poor in spirit and we need you. Jesus, we need you. We acknowledge that tonight. Lord, would you help us by your grace to help us go up the mountain to know you on a personal level. May we abide in you. Would you change our appetites? Would you change our lives? Would you be given glory because of the work that you have done here and each and every day moving forward? Would you do that, Lord? You can put your hands down. for those in the room that have never had the walk up the mountain experience, having a relationship with God, if you've never prayed and believing that Jesus died on the died the death that we deserve so we could have fullness of life, if you've never had the opportunity to just take the next step of faith, which was the first step of faith, I pray that you would raise your hand right now and just say, Lord, I need you. I want to live in right relationship with you. I want to go up the mountain. Lord, Jesus, help me. I don't want to be ashamed of this. I want, I want, I don't care what anyone else says. I just want to raise my hand. Lord, I need you. You can put your hands down. Jesus, we need you. Every one of us in this room needs you. Would you help us? May your kingdom come.